Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Stone Chiseler Sunday. This is chapter six of The Stone Chiseler. If you're just now tuning in, I want to tell you a little bit of background on The Stone Chiseler. So I had read years ago Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is an account of Victor Frankl's uh, time in the Nazi concentration camps right before World War II. He and a lot of other intellectuals and scientists, uh, Jewish intellectuals and scientists, were gathered up and taken to the concentration camps. Before Viktor Frankl was taken to uh, to the prison camps, he was uh, working on his logotherapy. And in fact, before he left, he had already uh, had a manuscript of his first thesis that his wife had sewn in his coat a special pocket to hopefully hide his manuscript or his thesis and be able to take it into the camps with him. He and his wife, by the way, who was pregnant with their child, would never see each other again. Uh, the unborn child and mother would not make it through the war. But Viktor Frankl entered the uh, his first uh, concentration camp, and immediately his manuscript was taken from him. In fact, everything was taken from him, even the hairs on his head. He describes in Man's Search for Meaning how they stripped the prisoners of everything, and it was purposeful. They would strip them bare, naked, and then they would shave them completely. They wanted to demoralize them as much as possible, and then they would give them a, a number that they'd be referred to for the rest of their time in the war. And so this book follows a young boy who essentially himself is stripped of everything, family, identity, even the hairs on his head whenever he is cast unjustly into this new prison, relatively new prison known as the Stone Yards. And it is there that he has to decide, like Viktor Frankl, that is it true that no matter what our circumstances, if we are willing, our attitude, which is, as Viktor Frankl has described, the last of the human freedoms, that we can always decide no matter what our circumstance we can choose our attitude no matter the circumstance. And that is what Giovanni Cristiani is faced with over and over and over. And it's during this time that he, um, he has a mentor that shows up unsuspectingly to help guide him through this process. And right now, in Chapter 6, we're leading up to the mentor finding his way back to Florence, Italy, during the Renaissance era, where he meets for the first time, the the stone chiseler, and then they establish a relationship, and throughout the course of the story, you'll find out whether or not young Giovanni will, in fact, decide his own attitude during the midst of these horrors. I hope that if you're re- if you're listening along every Sunday, I hope you're enjoying the story. You can buy a copy of it at Amazon. You can download it on Audible, or you can just keep checking back here where this is something that I'm doing as just kind of a gift to introduce the book, and also just something that hopefully that you're looking forward to on Sundays to listening to the story of young Giovanni Cristiani, the stone chiseler. Thanks for listening. Chapter 6. The Apprentice Returns Ah, there he is, the man said. My artiste in residence. I've waited for you for some time, my friend. I was beginning to wonder if you had changed your mind. Of course not, my lord. Wanting to ensure that my mind, heart, and brush were in unquestionable harmony, I delayed until they were all in agreement with one another. And is your little trio rehearsed and ready? 
I dare say, yes. However, one never knows until he begins waving his arms and putting brush to canvas, no? Laughing, the gentleman said, <laughs> Why, yes, I suppose so. The man was a long-time friend of the old man's father. He was a wealthy merchant who had accured his wealth in the silk trade. He also held great influence in the city. Unlike the other fiefdoms of Italy, Florence was questioning old ways of civic government and discourse. Why should one's bloodline determine authority instead of merit? More to the point, why shouldn't those with the greatest wealth have more of a say in shaping their city? As this idea took root, Florence flourished. It became a center for the arts and commerce. Cathedral after cathedral was constructed, each grander than the one before. The city streets were clean and spacious. It was a city that mirrored the Renaissance era better than any other. It appeared that everything was constructed with a careful eye for aesthetics. Nothing was by happenstance. The silk trader and the artist's father had conducted business in days past. The man, being a large estate holder and the artist's father a notary, put them at the same table often. They developed a friendship as a result of these dealings. The relationship between father and son existed only in the biological sense. For much of his youth, the artist was haunted by his father's unwillingness to call him a son. As he aged, however, he realized that much of his world could be carved from his own tastes and passions. Had his father laid claim to him, he may certainly would have been expected to follow in his father's footsteps as a notary. While this is a noble profession, it seemed to the man as dull and lacking a vocation as that of a sand counter. The trip gave him a great deal of time to reflect upon his career at that point. He had endeavored to make himself a man of perfect proportion. He had even studied the writings of a Roman soldier turned architect named Vertruvius. Vertruvius had written ten books on architecture. The man had studied them for years. So interested in the writings was he that he took it upon himself to learn Latin just to interpret them. The work combines a unique dose of technical reference along with philosophy. Much like the artist, Vitruvius had to make his own way. Vitruvius spent the first half of his career as a Roman soldier. He wasn't born of nobility, nor did he serve as a high-ranking military official. Upon his retirement from the Romans' legion, he thought himself somewhat insecure, having never accomplished anything noteworthy. He, like many men before him, wanted to gain a crowning achievement, something that would ensure that his name echoed throughout the ages. He decided to author a guide to building an empire. The subject of his guidebook was not an accident. In 20 BC, a consul by the name of Gaius Octavius Thorinus, not yet 40 years old, assumed the title of emperor. The new emperor renamed himself Caesar Augustus. The name was chosen with great care and consideration. It was the desire of Augustus to bring Rome back to her former glory. He sought to reform the Rome he found waiting for him when he returned from years of battle. Rome was filthy. Streets were covered in mud, overcrowded, and in horrible disrepair. Prostitutes, merchants, and beggars filled the streets alongside citizens and government officials. Augustus would set about the greatest reconstruction project the world had ever seen. This no doubt thrilled Vitruvius, who saw an opportunity to gain the notoriety he so desperately craved. He realized a golden opportunity had presented itself. If the new Caesar were to set about building a new and improved empire, he was just the man to write the manual to be followed in doing so.
Fortunately, during his time as a soldier, he had studied architecture in his free time. He also possessed a working knowledge of ditch digging, canal construction, and other areas of building for which he could give instruction. If he could catch the eye of Augustus and play a role in the greatest capital construction campaign in the history of the world, he would then secure for himself a position of immortality among the gods. Vitruvius had strong ideas for the skill set of an architect required. It was his contention that an architect must be multidimensional. He must be equally well-versed in the arts, temperament, religion, and philosophy. Architecture, Vitruvius believed, was the most notable of professions. It was much more than the design and construction of buildings. He believed the homes, buildings, roads, and other designs made by architects connected the human with the divine. As he saw it, a city was a living, breathing organism, and it was the architect that gave birth to that physical body. Vitruvius considered the architect, as well as himself for that matter, much more than a mortal being. He was in contact with the gods in a way few others were. The ghost of Vitruvius roamed the streets of Florence. It was a city not defined by one thing. Rather, it was a feast of beauty, culture, order, and prosperity. It was an idealistic Renaissance town where the old artist was at home. This was a special place for him, for he had spent much of his youth in Florence, serving as an apprentice to a notable artisan. As time passed, however, and as he grew in notoriety, his commissions took him throughout Italy. Reaching the twilight of his life, and now missing out on what were once all but guaranteed commissions, he returned to the city that held his heart, for a labor of love as well as a need for money. Lack of talent wasn't the cause of the loss of commissions, rather it was the abundance that seemed to be the problem. The only thing that rivaled the artisan's talent was his curiosity, which never seemed to rest. It seemed as if he were on a lifelong quest to understand why and how the universe worked. Unlike many others who held the same curiosities and devoted themselves to the sciences, he often described his findings through various forms of artistic expression. The most recent commission held a special place in his heart. It would be an expression of how nature pours into the human being. He wanted to show the attachment we share with the natural world. At this point, everything he put his hand to was an outpouring of his curiosity and lessons learned from a life richly lived. 